Mark chapter 14 is going to take care of us today. What does faithfulness look like? I think it might best be described through a story rather than just by a definition. I read a great story about faithfulness recently about a couple named Julie and her husband Rich, Julie and Rich Morgan. Uh, When they were younger, they lived in Michigan and they had a favorite pizza restaurant, a place called Steve's Pizza. And they made it a point to eat at Steve's as often as they could, especially in their younger days when budget was tight. They always saved enough money that on payday they could go to Steve's and eat their favorite pizza. And it became the gold standard for them. They would measure or evaluate every other pizza against Steve's. They would eat good pizza in other places, but Rich would always say, "Mm, it's not Steve's. Julie and Rich were faithful to Steve's pizza. Some years later, they moved away from Michigan. They lived in Indianapolis, three hours away, and uh, so no longer could they visit their favorite pizza place on any sort of a regular basis. But uh, this year, for Julie's 56th birthday, they planned a trip back to the old place, and they were going back to eat at Steve's Pizza. Uh, The week that they were supposed to go on their trip, Rich fell ill. He'd been in a long battle with cancer, and that week was a particularly bad week, and he ended up in the ICU, and they learned that they learned that Rich's battle with cancer was soon coming to an end. So Julie's dad, uh, unbeknownst to her, called up Steve's Pizza. And he explained their long history with the restaurant and asked if the manager would just reach out and make contact and give some well wishes. He thought with Rich on hospice care that a call from the manager at Steve's Pizza would be a big pick-me-up. But the manager, a young man named Dalton, did something better. He asked what their favorite pizza was, and then he made two of those pizzas, and he got in his car, and he made a three-hour drive to Indianapolis to deliver those pizzas. When he got to their house, he left his car running in the driveway, and he went up to the front door, handed them the pizzas, gave them some hugs. They invited him in. He said, I can't. i got to get home because I've got to go back to work tomorrow. So then he got in his car and he drove three hours to get back home. Steve's Pizza was faithful to the Morgans. Faithfulness is a wonderful quality to possess. It's an even more wonderful quality to experience. When someone is faithful to us, it's their way of saying, you're important to me, I'll keep my word to you. When someone treats us that way, it fills us with such joy, such loyalty, such happiness. If we can see faithfulness in a pizza restaurant manager, then how much more can we see faithfulness in Jesus Christ? It's moving to hear the story of the manager making the long drive to give pizza to the couple, but how should we respond when we think of Jesus who laid down his life for us? What does faithfulness look like? Jesus is faithful. In our passage today, he's faithful to the Father's will that's going to lead him to the cross. He's faithful to sinners like us to keep his word, to die in our place and rise again. 
Have you ever considered how your days might be changed if you were to dwell on and enjoy the faithfulness of Jesus Christ? Our story picks up in Mark chapter 14, verse 26. And it were right after the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, the new Passover meal that Pastor Stephen preached about last week. Uh, all these things are happening in, in the same night within just minutes of each other. We're mere hours away from the cross, and having completed the meal, Jesus takes his disciples outside the city to pray. Now, it might help you as I read here in a moment to be able to visually map what we're reading. There are three distinct scenes in our passage. The first scene is this, Jesus and his disciples are on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. The second scene is Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying. The third scene is Judas and the mob arriving to arrest Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the three different scenes in our story today. In each of these scenes, we see the faithfulness of Jesus especially contrasted with the utter failure of everyone else in the story. And so my purpose today in preaching this passage is to highlight the faithfulness of Jesus so that we might live our lives in the power of his love. We ought to walk out of here today hearts filled with joy and strength at the picture of Christ's faithfulness to us. I'm going to do this by sharing three contrasting pictures that describe the failure of man and the faithfulness of Jesus. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 14, and I'll start in verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. That's his disciples. You'll all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written... I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. 
Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. In these three different scenes, we have three different pictures of the failure of man and the faithfulness of Jesus. This is what I want us to highlight as we work out this passage. So let me show you three comparisons that highlight the faithfulness of Jesus. If you're taking notes, the first comparison is this. We run, he rescues. We run, he rescues. So in our story, the Passover meal is completed. Jesus and his 11 disciples leave Jerusalem heading east. They go out of the city to the east, and they go to this place called the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is just adjacent to the city. It's across a valley from the temple complex itself, and it's just it's a large hillside covered with all these olive trees. That's why it's called the Mount of Olives. Now, on this night already, it's been a night of shocking statements, right? Jesus had just finished saying to his disciples with bread and wine, this is my body and this is my blood. But that's not the end of the shock. Look at verse 27. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, you will all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is telling them, here's what's going to happen. You're going to leave me, abandon me, desert me, forsake me. You're all going to fall away. Now Jesus quotes from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. That's the line here where he says, it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In Zechariah chapter 13, it describes God's anger at his people for their sin. And God is going to judge his people because of their sin against him. And so in Zechariah 13, God speaks to a sword. And to the sword, he says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And so the sword does what the creator commands. The sword strikes the shepherd, and then the people scatter. Now, Mark quotes this text, and he quotes it essentially the same, but he makes a small tweak. He puts the verb in the first person so that it's not the sword striking the shepherd. He says, I will strike the shepherd. Who's the I in that quote? The I 
is God. God is the primary agent who drives this action. Even in Zechariah, he speaks to the sword and the sword does what it's told. God is the agent who strikes the shepherd and then scatters the people. God's the one who is responsible at this point. And how do the disciples respond to this news of their impending flight? Well, Peter promises that he's going to stay till the end. He's incensed at the idea that he would forsake Jesus. And Jesus, of course, tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows? And then Peter responds, look at verse 31. Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And Peter's bravado is infectious to the rest. All the others said the same. Here's a question for us to answer. When Jesus speaks of the strike against the shepherd, what is the strike? Well, we might say, well, the strike is when Judas betrays Jesus and then the disciples scatter into the night. That's the strike and the scattering. In, in part, that's certainly true. There's a short vision sense in which this is fulfilled in very immediate terms on this night. But there's a clue in the passage that tells us there's more to the strike than just Judas arriving. Look at what Jesus says in verse 28. He predicts the strike, the scattering, and then verse 28 he says, but after I have risen. So what's the strike against Jesus? It's not just the betrayal and his arrest. That strike is the cross. I will be struck and then I will rise. The strike against the shepherd happens only in small part in the garden, but in full at the cross. And that's the event that causes God's people to scatter. They go their own ways after the cross a little bit. You remember Peter, after the cross, what does he do? He goes fishing. After the cross, what does Thomas do? He refuses to believe anything unless he can see it with his own eyes, touch it with his own hands. They're not necessarily scattered physically in the immediate days after the cross, but they are scattered spiritually. And isn't it incredible that even as Jesus describes their coming failure, he also speaks of their restoration. Don't miss this point. He tells them, I'll be struck, you'll be scattered. But verse 28 is huge. After I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. He's giving them a road map for life after the cross. I'll be struck, you'll be scattered. I'll rise from the dead. He just kind of says it matter-of-factly. After I rise, I'll meet you in Galilee. Do you know, just on a side note, Jesus and the disciples do meet in Galilee. Do you know what happens in Galilee after the cross? The Great Commission. Go back and read Matthew 28. Jesus and the disciples meet in Galilee. He makes them travel this far distance, go all the way to hear his commission to them to take the gospel to the whole world. Jesus knows their failure. He knows they will run. He knows they are weak. But he is faithful to endure the strike and to do what is required for the salvation of his people. God saves runners. He calls the weak He calls those who have false courage. 
He rescues those who think too highly of their own abilities and aren't in real touch with the seriousness of their own sin. This has always been true. It's always been true also that we've had problems remembering that God rescues runners. The Apostle Paul had to remind the Christians in the city of Corinth about their own weakness as well. I want you to look and see what Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. We are all runners. But there's good news. Jesus is also a runner. One writer called him the hound of heaven. His eyes are on a target and he pursues it with ruthless efficiency. That target is you. He knows your weakness. He knows your failures. And he knows you're prone to think higher of yourself than you ought to. He knows all of that. And still, he takes the strike. He goes to the cross. He is faithful to save us. Christian, are you running today? Maybe this is the day that the hound of heaven catches up with you. Maybe this is a day for a fresh start. The fires of your affections towards the Lord have grown cold. Appetites have taken the place of spiritual disciplines. The Lord has become an afterthought. Maybe today's the day that you're humbled by the portrait of the Christ who knows you in all of your sin and failures and could not possibly love you more than he does right now. Loves you enough to take the strike and to gather you from the sin that scatters you. So we run and he rescues. Let me show you another contrast in this story. The second contrast is this. We sleep, he submits. We sleep and he submits. So Jesus takes his disciples to an area on the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is the location of an olive press. In fact, the word Gethsemane is a combination of two Hebrew words, God and Shmanim, which literally means press of oils. The Garden of Gethsemane is the Garden of the Olive Oil Press. It makes sense to have a garden like that, a Gethsemane, in the midst of the Mount of Olives. It might help for you to wrap your mind around their location, if you could see it a little better. Let me show you a couple of pictures that might help. If you have olive trees and you harvest your olives, they come off looking like this. Uh, your olives come off the tree really hard. They don't have a pimento already in the middle of them. Uh, that requires extra labor on your part. But they're not soft, they're not squishy, they're extremely hard. And so you take your harvest and the first stop for your harvest is the olive mill. And so you put your olives 
And the next picture is a picture of the mill. You would put your olives in the large round basin. And then this stone, this millstone, is rolled over those olives and crushes them, the pits, the skins, the fruit, everything. Oftentimes that's pushed by a donkey. Uh, People could perhaps push that as well, push smaller versions of that. Remember what Jesus said about the person who caused children to stumble away from him? It would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the ocean than to face the wrath of God. You put your olives in the large basin. The stone rolls around, creates a mash. You scoop up that mash and you put it into these special baskets and then you take the baskets to the olive press. The next picture is a picture of an olive press. Now, if you'll look underneath the long log, you'll see a stone and then some pancakes. Well, those pancakes are the baskets with your olive mash in them. And weight is applied to the pole using different levers or pulleys in some systems. And then the olive oil comes out and is collected. There's a small hole in the ground at the base of that large stone. That is your God shmanim, your press of oils. When you press the oils, you would press them, or press the olives, excuse me, you would do three presses. So you press once, and that first olive oil that comes out is the best olive oil. And that oil is given to the temple for use in worship practices there because your first fruits belong to the Lord. The second press was also good oil, and that was used for cooking purposes, for hygiene, to make perfume, things like that. The third press was not good oil, and that was the oil that was used to light your lamps or to make soap out of for other industrial purposes like that. So Jesus goes to the garden of the oil press. And in the place where olives are pressed, Jesus himself feels the intense pressure of this moment. Verse 34, he says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. In the place where olives are pressed three times, Jesus prayed three different times. In the place where olives are crushed, we're given a vivid picture of what Jesus will endure at the cross. A little bit ago, we read Isaiah 53, 5, which tells us the Messiah was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. In the place where the first press of oil is set aside for the Lord, well, Jesus committed himself to the Father's will. Remember, he prayed, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That simple prayer in verse 36 is truly special. We see a a glimpse of Jesus' humanity. More than a glimpse, uh, this humanity is on full display. He's deeply troubled troubled by the events that are about to unfold. And doesn't that seem a little odd that Jesus would be troubled at this point? He knows what's going to happen. 
He knows exactly what's going to happen. He's predicted that he would be betrayed by one of his own, that he'd be arrested by chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees, that he would die and that he would rise again. In fact, just moments ago, he had told his disciples, after I rise, I'll meet you in Galilee. So why, if he knows the end of the story, why is he so troubled at this point? Well, I think the text gives us a clue. When he says in his prayer, in verse 36, to the Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What is the cup? Jesus is speaking of. Well, the cup is a metaphor. This is poetic language, and it has Old Testament roots. When it's used in the Old Testament, it sometimes is a metaphor of blessing, a cup of blessing. But more often than not, it's the cup of judgment or the cup of wrath. An example of this is in Jeremiah chapter 25. In Jeremiah 25, it describes in graphic detail God's judgment on the nation of Judah for their sin as well as his judgment on all nations for their rejection of him. So God tells the prophet Jeremiah this in Jeremiah 25, 15. He says, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. The cup of Jeremiah 25 is poetic language describing God's wrath on sin. The cup metaphor means God uses horrifying or is unleashing horrifying judgment on the one who drinks from the cup so when jesus prays take this cup from me i don't think he's wrestling with the decision about whether or not to go to the cross nor is he scared of dying or uncertain of what's to happen rather jesus is reacting properly to the burden of the sin he will bear and the terror of the wrath he will endure at the cross Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death because he was about to endure the unbridled wrath of God on sin. And in the face of the crushing pressure of this moment, Jesus says, yet not what I will, but what you will. He submits fully to the Father's will. Contrast this with the disciples whom Jesus pleaded with to stay awake and pray. Their response was effectively, not what you will, but what I will, and I want to take a nap right now. That's what they do. It's easy for you and I to look down on the disciples and their failure. We might be so bold as to think, man, if if I were there, I would stay awake. I would pray with Jesus. I would support him in this hour of need. I mean, for Jesus to speak Uh, with such clarity about the pressure he's under, that would keep me awake. This was not a common thing. But we would not, and we have not, as long as we read this story as if it's about someone else, we'll never see ourselves for who we truly are, and we'll never, never experience Jesus for who he truly is. We are runners, we are sleepers, we are sinners through and through. We have rejected Jesus. We have embraced our sin. And we have patted ourselves on the back the whole time thinking that we're doing better than other people. How does Jesus respond to sinners like us? He prays, Father, not what I will, but what you will. He submits to the Father's plan to drink in full the cup of wrath intended for us sinners. How does it impact you? 
to know that Jesus knows fully all of our sinfulness and yet is faithful to drink the cup of wrath for you. Something you have to get right if you're going to get salvation right is that you are responsible for your sin. It is our sin that separates us from God. And there is not one single thing you and I can do to bridge that gap that we have created between us and God. Our sin is too great. Our righteousness is too filthy. There's no way for us to woo God our way. And I don't care what your personal resume looks like. Brother and sister, you've got to get this in your soul if you're going to be saved from hell. That we deserve this. We have earned it and you might be an incredible parent an amazing spouse a veteran a a great citizen a, a wonderful taxpayer whatever and all those things make for you a great neighbor and they will place you in hell under the cup of god's wrath without jesus christ as your substitute he calls us to believe on the one who laid down his life who drank the cup in full You do not want to drink that cup. That's why Christ came and died in our place and rose again and worthy of all of our faith and devotion. To say Jesus loves us as sinners is not to say that he leaves us as sinners. He loves us that we might leave our sin and embrace him, chain ourselves to righteousness and walk with him in holiness. So he calls you today. Friend, you, you might be a very religious or very spiritual person, but you have to get this right. You've got to put your trust in Jesus Christ because he is the one who took the wrath for your sin. There's no other way. There's no other one. Jesus is the one, and that's good news for you. God loves you this much that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. And he calls you today to trust in him. We sleep, he submits. One more contrasting picture in this story. We forsake, he fulfills. We forsake and he fulfills. So Mark gives us exquisite details as he describes the arrival of Judas and the crowd that's with him. The crowd seems to be a mixture of religious police, maybe Roman soldiers and some religious leaders. Uh, Judas, when he gets there, he addresses Jesus as rabbi, which was custom for the disciples. They called Jesus that frequently. And then he kissed him, and this was the signal in the nighttime darkness that this was indeed Jesus. They didn't have a picture of Jesus or an artist's rendering. They needed Judas to identify the one whom they wanted. The whole thing is, the betrayal of the moment is intensified by Mark's description. When he identifies Judas, he, says, he calls him Judas, one of the twelve. Do we need that line, one of the twelve? We don't. We know who Judas is. But Mark wants to make sure that we understand it is someone as close as a brother to Jesus who betrays him. This is not just some long disgruntled employee on the fringes. This is the one who dipped his bread in the same cup as Jesus, sat next to him at dinner. This was his his friend, his brother, Judas. 
who betrayed him. Mark tells us that Jesus is seized and arrested and in all the chaos, one of the disciples pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. This weird happening, this swinging of the sword, it's recorded in all four Gospels, but with different details given in each of them. Mark gives us the fewest details about the incident. John identifies the attacker as Peter and says that the servant's name was Malchus. Both Luke and John tell us it was the servant's right ear that was cut. In Matthew, Luke and John, Jesus calls for a stop to the disciples' opposition. And in Luke alone are we told of Jesus healing the man's ear. Now, according to Mark, after the sword is swung, the ear is lopped off, Jesus turns his attention to the crowd, and in verse 48, he rebukes them. Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Right, so Jesus challenges the, just, uh, challenges the justification and the manner of their tactics. They've come after him with weapons as if he's leading a rebellion, and they've come at night because they fear his influence with the people. The whole thing is just ridiculous. And at this moment, all the disciples flee into the night. We're told of one young man who is seized and then in panic runs away, leaving his garment behind. There's been a lot of ink spilt trying to identify this young man who flees naked into the night. Ultimately, we don't know who it is. And what's important is not identifying the one who runs, but recognizing the terror of the moment. They would do anything to get away from Jesus in the mob at that time. There's one line from Jesus' rebuke of the crowd that strikes me as incredibly important. At the end of verse 40, when he is wrapping up this rebuke, he says to them, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Why was Jesus arrested? Was it because Judas was a sly schemer? Nope. Was it because the mob was of sufficient size to take control of him? Hardly. He controls wind and waves. This crowd would be nothing for him. Was it because he was caught off guard by the plot of the religious leaders? That's, that's not why he was arrested either. He permitted himself to be arrested because this is what the Scriptures required. In a small way, the Scriptures had spoken of his abandonment by his disciples. But in a grander way, the Scriptures have spoken of his suffering for the salvation of his children. Jesus goes where the Word of God takes him. Where does the Word of God take him? The, the Word of God takes Jesus all the way to the cross. We would like to think that our obedience to the Word of God and the will of God would take us only down streets of gold to pearly gates and every day with Jesus sweeter than the day before. But sometimes the Word of God takes us to valleys, to hard places, to difficult seasons. When Jesus prays in the garden, he submits to the will of God, and then he voices that by saying the Scriptures must be fulfilled. There in the Scriptures where we find the will of God for our lives, for us to follow. And Jesus, in his time of chaos and trial, how's he comforted? He's not comforted by his friends. He's comforted by the Father. 
He gets alone and he prays. And there he finds sufficient comfort and strength for the moment. There he remembers again the will of God, submits to it, and the scriptures of God that articulate his will. But this is a hard lesson for me. You see, when chaos comes my way, maybe when chaos comes your way also, I presume that the only way I'm going to have peace is if God sets things right. I'll be in turmoil until things get back to status quo. But doesn't Jesus teach us a different way here? That peace does not depend on our circumstances. Peace depends on the God who is with us in that chaos. You've been there. I've had a reminder of this in my life not too long ago. When things turned upside down, everything I thought was right is suddenly called into question. And in my panic, I forget what the Scriptures have said. I forget what the will of God is. I forget His presence with me. And I've got to be reminded. And you've got to be reminded. Here's what you should do today. Going through crisis, facing a difficult situation, you should get alone and get quiet with Mark 14 open on your table and just put yourself in the emotion of all the turmoil, all the chaos, all the fear, and then see Jesus. Read about Jesus in the garden. Read about Jesus arrested. See his faithfulness on display. And let the faithfulness of Christ anchor your soul in the storm. He will not let you go. He has not given up on His promise to you. He keeps His word and His promise. The Scriptures are fulfilled. He dies. He rises again. Life is found for all who come to Him in faith. He does not let you go. It's easy for us to think that maybe our chaos is a form of God's punishment. I'm going through this because I did something wrong. I know I I haven't been the person I should be in Christ. Or when someone close to us, someone we love, goes through difficult days, we might even attribute it to our own sin. This is my punishment. They're they're suffering because I've been bad. But if if we know that Jesus kept the will of God and obeyed the word of God, then we know that there's no punishment for those who are in Christ. No condemnation, no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. God will discipline those whom he loves, yes, but discipline and punishment are two very different matters. Discipline is meant to shape us in our holiness. But punishment is wrath, and it is unbridled, and it is eternal. There's no more punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's taken away. So in our hard times, we see Jesus being faithful to the will of God and the word of God. We ourselves have to follow in his steps. We ought to admit it or expect it that these things will come our way. Again, Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was forsaken by all in order that all who believed in him will never be forsaken. And this faithful Savior has made a way for you. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, we learn a lot about ourselves. We learn a lot about Jesus. 
We are runners, we are sleepers, we are forsakers. We learn about Jesus that he rescues sinners, that he submits to the Father's will, he fulfills the word of God, he is, in a word, faithful to us. I have a friend named Terry. Terry's dad's name is Roger. And many years ago, Roger chose to show his love for his wife in this way. He built her a house. That was Roger's job. He was a contractor. And so he got his friends together, and they built this house. Terry and his siblings uh, grew up in this house, and this was going to be the house that Roger and his wife would be in for the duration of their life together. And his wife loved that house, but not nearly as much as she loved the man who built the house for her. It was a really special thing. Years later, Roger's wife uh, received a very serious diagnosis, and this illness decreased her mobility gradually. Roger was her primary caregiver, and he hated to see his wife like this, but it was his joy to care for her. As the illness advanced, he did more and more for her. He fed her, he dressed her, he cleaned her. One day she needed a bath, but this was the first day on which she could not walk anymore. And the wheelchair wouldn't fit through the bathroom door. So Roger made sure his wife was comfortable in another room, and he went out to the garage and pulled out his electric saw. And he started at the top of the door frame, and he cut across, and he cut the wall down, and he cut it across, and he ripped out all the debris, and he put his wife in a wheelchair, and he gave her a bath. When Terry asked his dad, why didn't you call someone to come help you with mom to get her in the bathroom? Roger said, she needed a bath. Who cares about a wall when the woman you love needs a bath? In Roger, we see a glimpse of the faithfulness of Jesus to us. Roger was faithful enough to cut down a wall. Jesus was faithful enough to lay down his life. He is your faithful Savior. He's your faithful healer. He's your faithful forgiver. He's your faithful restorer. And it is time for all of us runners to come home. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the love you have shown us. It is a love that is palpable, not theoretical, not mythological. It is historical. It is experiential. I know my heart, and I think in ways my heart is indicative of other human hearts that uh, we are inclined to think so highly of ourselves. But Father, thank you for showing us in the mirror of your word today uh, our failures. And they are many. They are more than we can overcome. But thank you that as we see our own failures, we see the success of the Savior who said yes to the Father's will, who fulfilled the Scriptures, who drank the cup of wrath in full, that we might be saved.
So God, I, I pray this morning for friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, that they would believe, not just with some intellectual knowledge, but from the core of their being, they would give all they are to you. All their sin, all their failure, all the doubt and fear, the d- disbelief, the betrayal, the rejection, all of it, give it to you that it might die at the cross and that they would be given in its place the holiness of Jesus Christ. Awaken faith in them today. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who need to be reminded that Jesus is faithful. He keeps his word. He does not give up on us. So Lord, bring us back to times of refreshing Thank you for the kindness of repentance. God, let this be a day that we rejoice in the faithfulness of Jesus and hold firm to his promises. Father, there is no God like you. There is no one who has loved us the way you have. Lord, we praise you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.